0: Support for MPB comes from the Mississippi Museum of Art in Jackson. What Became of Dr. Smith by artist Noah Satterstrom is on view now through September 22nd, 2024. Learn more at msmuseumart.org.
1: This podcast is a local production of Mississippi Public Broadcasting. It's made possible in part by contributions from podcast listeners. Please consider making a contribution by going to the Donate Now tab at mpbonline.org. Thanks for your financial support.
0: Hi, thanks for tuning into the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey with the Mississippi Arts Commission. Each week we bring you an in-depth conversation with a different creative Mississippian. We talk to visual artists, writers, musicians, craftspeople, photographers, all kinds of folks Uh, and learn more about what they do. And so you've been listening over the past month, and we continue to celebrate the Governor's Arts Awards recipients for 2023. And we have one of them with us today, Keith Francis. He is receiving the Excellence in Visual Arts Awards for the Governor's Awards this year. Keith, welcome.
1: Thank you, Larry. It's a pleasure to be on the program with you.
0: Well, this is a return engagement for Keith Francis. He was with us uh, Actually, just prior to the COVID outbreak, uh, Director Emeritus Malcolm White and myself came up to Tupelo and interviewed a bunch of artists, including yourself. So this is a return, but we're, you know, uh, the return is well warranted with your uh, 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 governor's awards that you're going to be receiving. So congratulations on that. Thank you.
1: I'm really pleased to receive the award. I feel like... uh... The state has done a lot over a long period of time to support my work and to encourage me and to show my work. And, you know, this is a sort of a culmination of that acceptance and recognition on the part of the state. The Arts Commission has given me grants and I've done a number of shows in the state and out of state, but a number of shows, at museums in the state. Uh, and it, it's great to to just have people acknowledge that they think the work is an excellent quality item.
0: <laughs> yeah, I'm so glad to hear that. It's, it's great to hear that this, is, this kind of fits into kind of your pathways as you see it. Um, tell people about, so you're a multimedia artist, you, you, you're involved in a lot of different uh, art forms, but tell people who've, who are just hearing about you now, uh, what, you know, kind of give us an overview of, of what you do as a, a creative person.
1: Well, I started out as a sculptor and got a degree in sculpture from the Cleveland Art Institute in Cleveland, Ohio, and taught there for two years as a technical assistant. And then I moved back to Tupelo in 1970 and built a studio and worked in Tupelo as a sculptor from 70 to 96. Uh, During that period, my primary focus was sculpture works, uh, commission works, uh, large scale works for banks, large scale works for public sites and smaller sculpture pieces that I showed in museums and galleries. All of the work has been since the beginning of my artistic career has been narrative work. It's all sequential and, and narrative in terms of content. My work's not abstract. It's about things. It's about something, you know. Often there's a story attached. It's not illustrational, but there's a story attached. And it's something that I think is part of my heritage. I think I grew up in a culture where the African-American folk tale tradition and the Celtic ballad and all of those things came together here in Mississippi at the edge of the Appalachian Regional uh, mountains, and it's it's a, it's just part of the heritage. I think I, I grew up pre-TV, <laughs> which dates me in an interesting way. But every evening when I was at my grandfather's house, we would all sit on the front porch, and people would play musical instruments and drink bourbon and tell stories. And and that, if you didn't if you came to that and you didn't have a good story for the day, uh, you were sort of made fun of in a funny, gentle way, but most everybody told stories. I can remember a, an instance when I was doing a reading in Boston when a person I, I could see, she was very interested in coming and talking to me and she she walked up to me after my reading and she said, I just want you to know there's nothing special about you. I, I've known a lot of people in my, in my time from Mississippi in the South and they all were good storytellers. And I said to her, I said, you know, you're absolutely right. But right now, if I went back to Tupelo, Mississippi, within three miles of where I live are two people in their 70s who are better storytellers than me. And they don't do it professionally. They just do it for fun. And the stories are always outrageous and interesting and funny and charming. And I, what I do, I, I do as a profession, and it's part of a, a broader body of work, but you're right, I'm, it's, it's a part of a heritage and there are many good storytellers and many good fiction writers from my home state, Mississippi. So I, I think I'm just part of that that group.
0: Yeah, well, so growing up in Tupelo, did you grow up in town, in the country? And, what, and talk about what influenced you to kind of become a creative person, were there specific people in your family or community that kind of guided you that way or, or influenced your thinking?
1: Sure, there were. I, as I as I mentioned, I was from a family, almost everybody could play music, and that was probably the form that was most apparent. I had an uncle that was a, a painter, and he would send me sets of oil paints for Christmas every year, hoping I would become interested in visual art and make paintings. And I remember I had gone to the library and got a book on Pablo Picasso. And I, I copied a Picasso painting called Three Musicians. And I showed it to him. And that ended it for him. He would no longer send me any paints. He didn't want me to, to paint like Picasso. <laughs> but but I, I did have family that were interested in the arts and, and encouraged me in art. And I was an only child. So my, I had a a sister who died before i was born and probably she was the biggest influence on my life because my family was always comparing me to what she might have been but in in that whole series of events there was i think an interest in in art and if you're an only child you have a lot of time on your on your own and I was never bored. I always found something really interesting to do, and often it occurred it occurred at a time in in my life when I was old enough to to whittle and to draw and to do things that uh, involved visual art in my hands and and the making of objects. And my grandfather was very good with wood woodworking, and uh, I, that was a, a part of my experience growing up. I Often I worked it into stories and and I tried to write stories though. My stories were not particularly well received by the English faculty in my junior high school, but they were they were looking back on them good stories. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so yeah, I've I've had a an interesting an interesting experience growing up in Tupelo in that regard in terms of the arts we didn't really have, we had one art teacher, it wasn't one part of the curriculum of school, I had a private art teacher. And I, I took a class with her for a year, and then preferred to just go ahead and paint on my own. After that, I felt like that was working better for me. But I grew up with another artist in high school named Randy Hayes, who's gone on to be a a well-recognized artist from Mississippi, who was artist of the year in Seattle one year, and has now moved back to Holly Springs. But we uh, we were the two young men who, between football practice and the regular afternoon classes, drew all the backdrops for the plays and the, and did the art that was needed by the the school. And he went on, then went to Rhodes and uh, Rhodes in Memphis, and I eventually went to, uh, went I went to State, and then home to the Memphis College of Art, and uh, we were right across the park from each other, so we were together often talking about work in the arts, still are very good friends, very close.
0: Well, that's cool, and, and I think he's recently maybe got a fellowship from us as well, I keep thinking that name hey, is I'm, familiar, yeah. Sure, th- he has, yeah. Yeah, that's great. We're talking with Keith Francis today on the Arts Hour. He is one of the two thousand twenty three Governor's Arts Awards recipients. He's receiving an excellence in visual arts and uh ceremony here in, in Jackson, of course, on February second. Let's see. So like you, you were in Memphis for a while and then you went off to the Cleveland Art Institute. What what led you to head up north and try that out?
1: I had a I had a really, really good drawing instructor named Ralph Orman and I worked with him, and he was encouraging at the Memphis College of Art. And he left and went back to his his alma mater, the Cleveland Art Institute, and suggested that they had a good print program and a good sculpture program there, and that it would. I think it, it, he thought it would be good for me to make a change in in climate and, and atmosphere and environment and go up to Cleveland and, and finish up up there. It was a five-year school for a, a bachelor's degree, which was a, a whole nother year beyond the degree program that I was currently involved with. But I, it, the last year was very much like a graduate program. And uh, and so I, I went ahead and, and did that. And I'm glad I did. I I, I, th- I felt like it was a an, an interesting change to go and to go, to go north and see what was going on. Uh, Willie Morris wrote the book North Towards Home. I think I think there was a part of my experience that I, I felt a kinship with the people that I was with there in Cleveland, and uh, and then they invited me to come back and teach, which was another honor. And I mean, I've, people have made exceptions of me, and I've never understood exactly why, but quite often in my life I've. I've had opportunities. the people have presented me with very interesting opportunities. So I, when I went to Cleveland, I, I taught in the taught the, uh, the high school classes on saturday and and they saw ways to get me some resources to to live and work there. and then finally hired me back to to teach and offered me a professorship if I wanted to to stay there. But that was, by that time, I'd already decided to move back to Mississippi and had built a 30 by 50 steel building in Tupelo to move back. And so their offer came just about three months too late. I, I was already sort of set on my plan to come back to Mississippi. And then from 70 to 96, I've made a living just on the work and showing nationally and internationally.
0: When, when you were in uh, Cleveland, I know a lot of Southerners, when they move out for the region the first time, they they get a new understanding of what the distinctiveness of their growing up years and that. And I was wondering if that kind of, um, you know, getting in that new setting, did that at all affect your work and make you think about kind of the narrative tradition that you came out of? Or was that already kind of set up for you in terms of what you were doing?
1: I think you're right in that regard. I think once once you leave a place, you recognize the unique aspects of the culture your original culture, and I, when I, the other thing that happens when you leave the region is you have a different accent. Uh, you sound a bit different than everybody else. People are sort of curious about what you're about, and they make a call on whether they like that or they don't like it. But, but I, I think the fact that I could tell stories and, and had an had interesting, uh, had an interesting childhood experience in the south was something that interested people. And the work reflected that. Even at that age, the work that I was doing, the images I was making were narrative works that related to my personal experience in the South. And uh, it it was interesting. This was an interesting fact. But about 20 years ago, I was doing a show in uh, California and one of my classmates from the Cleveland Art Institute that I hadn't seen in 20 years at that point, and it's been 20 years since, but but I came up to my to me at my exhibition at Lowe Gallery and in Santa Monica and said, Wow, you know, it's it's really interesting to see a person who I went to undergraduate with, work worked with in undergraduate school, who is still focused on the same things they were focused on when they were in school and have continued to develop that to the point that it's really become outstanding work. And I thought that was quite a compliment. And, and I thought it was an, it was an interesting thing too, because I think he was the, maybe one of the first people, we were good friends. He was one of the first people that probably recognized that there was, there was a, a, an honesty to the, to the statement I was trying to make. And, uh, and it did, it was reflective of a, of an environment that was unique and the work warranted some consideration. And I think he was pleased to find that it was something that I continued to develop. And the interesting part is that it, when he saw it, it was printmaking and drawing and some sculpture pieces. And then over the years, you know, it those things have combined to, and included photography and and bookmaking, and writing, continuing to write. And I just posted on, on Facebook a, a movie, a MP4 movie of one of my books called, called Plague Time Cosmetology, which is, which is a great title, but it was about a COVID experience. And I hadn't heard of this guy, this guy again in 20 years, and he's the first person that in the comments... Spot in Facebook wrote absolutely amazing in that in in that little block of space, yeah. and I, I thought that's interesting that this person has has followed the work. I mean, he recognized there was something unique in it, and and there was quality involved in it. And he's right right to the present day. He's still paying attention. That's you know that's fifty nine years. Wow, that's great. <laughs> he's followed that's the great. work
0: yeah to see kind of that that arc of your work from a student to now to a to a senior artist now is that's really amazing. This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide Radio network on Sundays at five pm. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. Join us each week for Everyday Tech on MPB Think Radio. We have an IT expert, a computer repair ace, and we troubleshoot your problems on the phones as well. Everyday Tech, Wednesdays at 10 on MPB Think Radio. Download the podcast now or listen on YouTube on the MPB Think Radio channel. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back on the Arts Hour. I'm Larry Morrissey, and our guest today is Keith Francis. He's an artist. He's a co-owner of Hoop Snake Press in Tupelo, Mississippi, and he's one of this year's Governor's Arts Awards recipients, receiving the Excellence in Visual Arts category. Uh so key, you mentioned kind of in, in the last segment talking about your bookmaking work. I just wanted people to under get an understanding of like what that what that means. And it's it's not like, you know, you you, you are a writer too, so you write, it's not like you write and send it off to the publisher. It's a it's all in it's an all-in-house production. So tell us a little bit about that.
1: Well, I think if you if you looked at my sculpture, what you would see was a person who did drawings, had a concept for a three-dimensional form, bought the steel, bought the welding gas, cut the shapes out, welded them together, finished them, prepared them for exhibition by patina in the surface and from the beginning of that process to the very end of that process every decision that was made in that sculpture would be a decision made by key francis and it, it, the work is made entirely by me everything is the product of my hand and i, I decided at one point uh, in my life, that I would like to. I, I was a really fan of Ben Franklin. I think maybe we talked about this on the first segment we t- years ago, years ago. But but I always liked the idea of being a printer. I, when I was a kid, I, I I got a little press for Christmas, and I printed a little newspaper when I was about ten years old for the city block, and sold them for a nickel a piece to door to door. And I, I've always been interested in printing, but When I decided that I would make some books, it wasn't because I was interested in the book like a book artist, like like a person who's trying to expand the form of a book. I was interested in the book because I had material that has classically been organized in a book form. I had short stories. I had images, graphic images, prints, and I had the skill sets to to produce these things. And what I needed to learn during this process was how to how to to put these things together and organize them in a in a stable fashion out of archival materials and 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 build them so that they would be beautiful books that were durable and bound in the in the the best possible ways and printed the same way that I would print any other fine art print. I'm making a woodcut or an etching or, or something, something uh, to print them in a way that was was collectible and, and to bind them in a, a way that would preserve that indefinitely. And I use a lot of uh, turn-of-the-century equipment, and I, I use that equipment not because I'm an antiquarian. I'm not really interested in the age of the equipment, But it's important to me that for people to recognize that while the the making of books for the contemporary publication organizations is designed for mass production, they're not necessarily designed to be collector's items and to to, to be passed on from generation to generation the way books were in the 1800s. Uh, for instance, uh, a book that's sewn with thread is more durable than a book that's simply glued on the edges. I mean, we've all had books. We've read three times and the pages started falling out. And And so I decided the thing to do for me was to learn, to figure out how to sew books because I wanted my books to stay together. And I, I, print, I wanted to print. And if you look at letterpress printing versus uh, offset printing, the ink is pushed into the fiber of the paper and it leaves an embossment in the paper, which is a beautiful tactile experience to touch that page. And that that pretty much stopped in the, the turn of the century. You know, I mean, people printed with letterpress and they still do on occasion, but commercial printing stopped in letterpress in the 1930s pretty much. And move to offset, and not because it was better, just because it was faster, and you could make a million books. And if you're going to sell a million books, that's a, that's a critical issue, you know. Uh, if if you look at binding and and the covers, then putting hardbound covers on books is expensive and laborious, but it really protects a book. So, all of these processes are things that I had to learn. But the the end result was to treat the book with the same in intent and respect that I would treat a framed print or a framed painting or uh, I'd I'd want the the frame to protect the the painting, you know? (laughs) I'd I'd want the the work to be on archival papers to last and not deteriorate. I'd want the ink to be acid free. Uh, All of these things are things that I have control over if I do this myself. And if I do it myself, it makes each individual copy very expensive for me to do. And I, I'm sorry about that. But like any handmade product, it's different than the commercially mass produced object. And and so I sell them the same way I sell fine art prints or fine art books. I mean, I, I mean, or sculpture or anything else I make. Uh, so yes, yeah, so I own some of this equipment. I mean, the sewing—I I found a, a book sewing machine that sews, sews the book signatures together, and that saves me a lot of time. And I can cut the cost of a book to people using that sewing machine. The book sewing machine was made in 1904, mm. and uh, and you still can buy. I mean, you still can find people who publish and and bind their books by, with Smythe sewing machines. But there, it's very still a very expensive process to, to have a book sewn is $30 copy just to have it sewn. So, so the fact that I can sew my own and I have the sewing machine to do it is an interesting thing. Uh, I, I have my own letter presses. I have my own printing presses for printing etchings and engravings. And most of this equipment is really from the turn of the century because that's where production and quality begin to sort of separate.
0: Right. So what did the, how did you learn? So was the letterpress something you brought in after you were a practicing artist out of school? Right. And so was that yeah. something like just a self kind of step-by-step step yeah. you, you bought one and you learned how to do it yourself? Yeah. There's a,
1: there's a sculptor who you, you may know, who taught at the university of Mississippi named Bill Beckwith and Bill Beckwith had, uh, had cast a sculpture for a person and had a, the guy owed him money and I had won the National Print and Drawing Show at, over at the gallery at, at Ole Miss and was standing there with a check for $1,200 for winning the show. And Bill Beckwith came in and he said, I've got a press, a letter press that I got on a bad debt and I, I want to sell it for $500. And I said, Well, here's the check for $1,200. Me, write me a check for $700. I'll be over tomorrow and pick it up. And that was really my first experience with actually running a letter press. And uh, my first book uh, is in a lot of famous collections, the Getty and the National Gallery, and everything else. That first book I made, but it's not—it's not a premier piece of printing. I can say that. I've learned a lot about letterpress printing in the last thirty years since I bought that press. But but uh, it's still a good book because it, the content of the book is interesting and and good. And I I'm still proud of the book. The woodcuts are gorgeous. The letterpress printing is a, a little. I I kept. The paper was dry, and I didn't know if you moisten paper, the ink would go into the fibers better. And I printed it on dry paper, and I kept thinking I need to add more ink to make the, to make it better. I had to throw away a lot of pages because oh, inks smeared okay. on them. <laughs> but but the equipment the equipment is part of the process and learning how how to use it. And you know, people go to school to learn that stuff. I, there's a quote I think from Ben Franklin about you know he who teaches himself a process as a fool for a master. I, I think that's, uh, I, think I, I learned a hard way some of that, some of that lesson, but, but uh, by and again, I, I would say I've, I've learned quite a lot of the techniques necessary to, to do quality work. I,
0: yeah.
1: And I, I say that not just based on my opinion, but curators don't shell out money for books and collections unless they're quality, quality products and and I have a lot of works in the collection, so yeah. so I think that speaks to that issue. But yeah, I, there's something there's something great. I, I mean, I don't really know anybody else. There probably are other people, but I don't really know anybody else. I that I actually know a poet who who does things from start to finish. But the number of people that write their books, design their books, print their books, and bind their books all themselves. Uh, the number of people that do that is very, very limited. Most often, you, you have a printer who might be also a visual artist, and he'll find a writer whose work he would like to publish and illustrate, and then he'll, they'll, they'll collaborate on a project. And I do that sometimes. If I find a writer I really like, I publish with them. But I don't illustrate. I mean, usually I, when I find a writer I like to work with, it's because their work and my work looks great together. And works great content wise and it's, it's work i've already made before i saw his work and his work he made without looking at my work and they just go good together you know uh i just finished a book with michael hannon from california called idiot wind based on this covid era yeah. and uh wasn't that a bob dylan
0: song too idiot wind it, it probably was yeah. probably
1: was yeah you know dylan's a, Great lyrics, great lyrics. I'd do a book with him. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I, this, this is a, it's a terrific book. I mean, it's in a lot of collections already, this book with Michael. And uh, it was a pleasure working with him. It came along at a good time for both of us. We were both sort of isolated and, and not going out much because of COVID. And I was in the studio and he sent this, the manuscript and, and I looked at it and I said, Boy, I've already got the I've already got the engravings that go with this, Michael. We'll let's do
0: a book. So we did. It took about five months, but that wasn't straight work. So going back to your bio for just a second, like so you you decided to come back to Tupelo and kind of set up your own your own place and, 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 and work as a professional artist. Was that initially as a sculptor or or when did you start kind of moving into more of the things that you're doing today?
1: Well, I, I had I had always in, in art school I, at, at Cleveland. I took some classes in printmaking, and I was an assistant in the printmaking class. Kept the materials on hand and worked with the acids and and helped students do their work. When I was when I was a, a fifth year student, uh, so I knew about printmaking, and I had not done letterpress work, but. I had at that point. I had uh, I, I came back as a sculptor, and I was working as a sculptor, and I was sending works off to competitions in crates because the sculptures were large size pieces, and the crates often would be damaged, and the the, the plywood crates would come back damaged from the exhibitions. I'd have to build new crates for the next exhibitions. I ended up with a stack of plywood, and I thought. You know this is this is a, a really crazy thing, but maybe I should do something with this plywood. So I started carving plywood and making woodcut prints. And before too long, the the money I was making from the woodcut prints uh, was a greater sum than the money I was making from selling sculpture. And I could because I was doing multiples, and I could have have work in more galleries. And so, so the prints quickly took a life of their own, took on a life of their own. But I wasn't combining text with them in any way. But the printmaking was a part of it really from probably 1975 or or 76 on. I I started Hoopsnake Press about that time and printed a few other artists at at my press. I had had printing presses at that point, I had uh, etching presses.
0: This is Larry Morrissey. Thanks for listening to the podcast version of the Mississippi Arts Hour. The show is broadcast on MPB's statewide radio network on Sundays at 5 p.m. For access to all our past shows, please subscribe to the Arts Hour on your favorite podcasting app. I'm Dr. Jimmy Stewart, Professor of Internal Medicine and Pediatrics at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. On the original Southern Remedy, we answer questions about all aspects of your health and share some of the latest medical information in the news. You can listen to the show on Wednesdays at 11 on MPB Think Radio, or you can subscribe to the podcast by searching for Southern Remedy on your preferred podcasting app. This is an MPB Think Radio podcast. We're back for our final segment of the Arts Hour today. I'm Larry Morrissey. And our guest is Key Francis. He's one of the Governor's Arts Awards recipients for this year, uh, his, him in the excellence in visual arts category. And we've been talking about his work up in Tupelo at his Hoop Snake Press based in Tupelo, Mississippi. Well, you know, one thing I was wondering about, you know, with because you're a you take care of all elements, you know, talking about all these, you must have to uh Keep up with a lot of equipment and things, right? I mean, it seems like there has to be. You mentioned the, the the sewing machine. You've got a letter press. You've got other presses. I mean, that's you must have a lot of a lot of machinery that has to be uh, looked after.
1: It does, and it's all really obsolete by the industry standards. Obsolete equipment. So finding parts for it, quite often, I have to make the parts myself. So it's a good thing I'm a sculptor. And I, as I mentioned, I think at some point I started out in aerospace engineering at Mississippi State uh, University, wanting to to do engineering. My grandfather was an engineer, and so having that background and his teaching me at an early age to use tools was has been a, a fortunate uh part of the whole process because often i the equipment that i get a hold of is needs repair hadn't been used for 20 years or something and sitting in a storeroom somewhere but but yes it's a, that's a part of it you know it's is maintaining the equipment and it's gotten harder and harder to do with technology you know i uh my friends who teach graphic design and When when the computer systems go down, there's a limit to how far you can go with with fixing those yourself. I mean, the parts are all sealed in plastic and you can't go inside them, even if you know where the switch is wrong and what's happened. You have to buy a whole complete part and solder it back in. And, and, you know, I use equipment that requires, has electronic components. And, uh, you know, sometimes that is quite a task to find a the right parts for equipment that's 20 years old or 30 years old. But, but uh, yeah, it's a, it's a technical part, but I, that's okay. I don't really mind that too much. It, it amounts to a very small part of the time.
0: Tell, maybe you could talk a little bit about kind of like the process from con, kind of conceptualization, since there's so many moving parts to specifically a book project, you've got the text, you've got the artwork, the, the, the physical, you know, kind of assembly, the letterpress work, how do you go from, could you maybe either pick a recent project or one that you're working on now or whatever to kind of give us kind of a rundown of how that, how it germinates and how you work it through the whole process? Well,
1: it's a really slow process. It's far, it's, uh, I think it's one of the things that I love about being absolutely in charge of my own project from beginning to end and not to, not to be in it. it Mercy of editors that I would argue with or people who are not working printing the way I want it printed or whatever. I, you know, I've worked on collaborative projects and I've said I said this on last year's uh, panel about books at the book festival that, you know, that a current book project is a project where the writer is not happy with the illustrator because the writer spends quite a lot of time trying to make a, a visual image out of words. And when they accomplish that, they don't want the illustrator to come and and to use the to, to build an image out of the illustrator's head of the same term of the book. And otherwise because then the book is doesn't allow each person to have their own conception of what that image might look like. They're stuck then with the image of the illustrator. The illustrator is put on the image. And it, with that in mind, I think the the illustrator is never happy with the designer because the illustrator's images don't go where they, he wants to see them in the book next to the text. And the, and the, the printer is not happy with the designer because it, the designer wants to use a typeface that doesn't work well on that paper, that that the that the, the artist wants to use, and it, and then the binder feels left out in the whole process because he hadn't had that much to, to say about what the binding should be and what how the pages should be put together. Should they be fold outs or should there be pages that disassemble or something like that? So it, it's a whole bunch of people working together. And they i mean great works have been done with this. I'm not saying that but it but it's a very complex process whereas in my my situation is uh is one where sometime I make an image and then I'll write a story about it and the image comes first and then the story next or sometime I will write a story and I'll have some images that go with that story subconsciously having done them before, and I'll start printing them and I'll decide it some way part way through to to, uh, to make a change in the type of paper I wanna use. And I'll throw away all those pages and start back again with the paper I think will work better with the image and the type. And, uh, and do, at no point do I have to consider whether this $30 book is gonna make a $5 profit or not. It's, it, it never comes into my mind. I, I just wanna do exactly the best thing I can do. And I don't have to argue with anybody about it, right? so in that sense i think that it's a, it's a it's a process that has a lot of give and take as as opposed to a, a project that might have a timeline on it by a publisher that you know you're paying somebody, somebody a, a fee for printing the book and all the print the book's got to be printed in so many days and and uh, you know if like if i if i start, start in on a, on the a text and i have an image and the image would indicate uh, I make I make an image. And the image would indicate that there needs to be another page in the story that that integrates that image into the story. I just write another page in the story, whereas you know that that's all part of it. the whole thing is just one big ball of wax moving together, and the binding in the same same way. It comes time to bind it, and I, maybe the first six or eight books that I do, and I sometimes I only do an edition of fifty books. I mean, this is what we're talking about, right? 150 maybe be tops but you know the first five or six books might be each of them bound differently as I kind of explore and look look at what I think what bindings work with it. I don't let them leave the shop if I don't think they're they have their own unique characteristic but then finally I'll settle on one that I do the final 35 or 40 books the same you know uh, but they're each individual objects that i make even if they are mass produced in, a, in an interesting kind of way
0: you're listening to the arts hour our guest today is key francis he's one of the governor's arts awards recipients for 2023 in the excellence in visual arts category so key um thinking about just like stuff that you've got going on this spring or later this year or is there anything that kind of in terms of projects you'd want people to know about things that are upcoming or things that You'd, you'd want to get the word out about now.
1: Yeah, there are. Right. There are things that I think I should mention. Uh, currently, there's an exhibition of the works that have been purchased for the permanent collection by the Montgomery Museum of Fine Art in Montgomery, Alabama, over a period of 30 years across three different directors. They thought the work, they looked at the work in in the, sort of the early 80s and decided that they were going to start collecting my work. And over the years, they bought quite a lot of work of mine for their permanent collection. And I, I had just finished a show at the Brooks Museum, a four-month show of 20 books, 20 books published by Hoop Snake Press. And I wrote Mon- the Montgomery Museum and an email and said, look, you know, I'm taking this show down. It's a easily shipped exhibition. 20 books you can fit in in a box. Uh, and if you'd like to have this show, since you've been interested in my work for 30 years, you, you'd like to have this show, I'd be happy to send it down to you and maybe come and do a reading or something. And I, they said, great, do it. But what we want to do is put up a room of your the works we have of yours from the permanent collection. And then we want to put half of the books from the Brooks show in a in a special book room with cases and and show the books and the work we have from the permanent collection and uh, so that that show runs really through the end of February uh, and is up right now. I'm going over on the 20th to do a do a talk to the the donors of the museum about the work and of course there's the event at the you mentioned February 2nd at the at the Capitol, which is, uh, we'll have the presentation of this Governor's Award. I'm excited about that. Marcy Fisher at Fisher Gallery wants to to have some sort of little gathering to go along with that, maybe show some new works of mine. I've I finished, since, uh, since the beginning of COVID, I finished five new books, and they're, some of them related to the to what's gone on during COVID. And some of them are separate and entirely fictional books. And one book called Idiot Wind with the poet Michael Hannon uh, based on events of the past three years. And those things are will all be on, um, my daughter and I are currently updating our website. So probably in the next couple of weeks, there'll be the images. I've, I've been doing MP4 movies of the, of the books that way you can kind of thumb through them the the way you would with a normal book and see the page after page sequence sequencing. Um, so those things were on Facebook under Key Francis art. Later on in October I'm going to work at in the University of Louisiana in Lafayette uh, with Brian Kelly in the, the print shop there to to work in his print shop and work with the students to make an edition of prints. And I'm looking forward to that. That's always a lot of fun. I usually have a, a pretty set idea in mind when I go to one of these workshops and, and, uh, carve the blocks down there and then we'll print them one at a time. Last time I was there, I think it was a seven block print, took ran seven different colors, but, uh, the students print them and they, and then i I hang around and talk to them about what it's like to be an artist while they, while they're printing. And it's always a fun event. You know, we we always have a good time, the students and the faculty and the visiting artists are always, it's a fun job to do.
0: Yeah. So, and, and, and working with, I mean, you've, you've had a, a history of teaching. Is that something that you still try to fit in a little bit here and there kind of in those situations or.
1: Well, you know, I, I the reason I like I, I went to different schools I went to and I went to five before it was over uh, to get an undergraduate degree. I, I went to those schools because there were people I wanted to work with, not because I wanted to accumulate the hours, because it was never my intention to have uh, to use that degree to teach or to to be applied in any way. I was interested in learning the, the craft and the skill sets necessary to be a working artist. And it turned out I did end up teaching uh, after working for 26 years on, as an independent artist. I became involved in teaching at the University of Central Florida. and But I went there as an administrator to run their fine art press. And uh, they wanted me to teach after about a year. They decided it was a good thing for me, to the students, to see what I did and how I did it. Uh, so I taught. And I... I've never have thought of myself as much of a teacher, but to, at one point we were talking about last interview, but at one point, 11 of my students moved to Tupelo, Mississippi to continue working with me. So I must be pretty good as a teacher.
0: <laughs> but I, Central I Florida, Tupelo is a little bit of a drive. So yeah, it's
1: a long drive. Yeah. yeah. They, so they moved to Tupelo and rented houses and worked out at my studio and shop and they're all off now have gotten graduate degrees and they all have careers and they're showing in Paris and Japan and New York. I'm in a show with one of them in New York right now. Uh, but it, it's been an interesting, an interesting part teaching. I, I'm i glad I didn't leave and go straight from graduate school to teaching. I, I'm glad I waited 26 years and had had a professional career before I started teaching at, I think i actually had something to say about yeah. about the discipline and uh, necessary to could do this as a career
0: yeah definitely definitely well keith thank you so much for your time today we really appreciate it and congratulations again on the uh, governor's arts award uh award and uh for folks who want to learn more about you and hoop snake press where do we send them online
1: Uh, they can go to hoopsnakepress.com or keyfrancisart.com and uh, if you google me you'll just find quite a lot of stuff
0: thanks for listening to this MPB Think Radio podcast MPB depends on support from listeners so if you can please contribute today at mpbonline.org chalkboard chat it's an mpb education podcast it's a variety show providing information and resources for teachers students parents guardians and everyday people on various topics it's learning something new with every publication chalkboard chat find the podcast or listen from chalkboardchat.mpbonline.org